This week, scientists scale up stem cells to regenerate monkey hearts. It took about a million cells to fix a mouse heart. It took 10 million to fix a rat heart. It took 100 million to fix a guinea pig's heart. And so we reasoned it would take about a billion to fix a macaque's heart. And centuries after the dust has settled, we look back to two deadly volcanic eruptions. It is kind of astounding that two of the most world-changing eruptions in recent times happened so close to one another. Plus, we find out how farmers are turning into researchers. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 1st, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Noah Baker. If researchers could work out how to regenerate damaged heart tissue, they could save millions of lives, because heart disease is the number one cause of death worldwide. Heart muscle cells, known as cardiomyocytes, depend on a regular supply of oxygen. So when an artery becomes blocked and the cells don't receive oxygen, they begin to die. But the heart heals poorly. Unlike skin or liver tissue, it struggles to regenerate on its own. Instead, it forms tough, gristly scar tissue, which doesn't contract. So what if researchers could mend this damaged tissue? Scientists have turned to embryonic stem cells, powerful pluripotent cells that can turn into virtually any cell type in the body. They've been able to turn these embryonic stem cells into cardiomyocytes that beat in a petri dish. And some researchers have transplanted these cells into the hearts of small animals. Now in a new paper in Nature, one team have scaled up to larger animals. I called author Chuck Murray at the University of Washington in Seattle and began by asking him how their work with embryonic stem cell-derived heart cells began. We had spent about five years learning how to control their uh, differentiation in a dish, and once we'd mastered that, uh, we began testing them in small animals. And so we tested them initially in mice and then in rats and then in guinea pigs, uh, working our way up into larger hearts that were slower and more closely resembling humans. And one of those hearts is the heart of a macaque, a monkey. That's correct. What have you done in your study then, using these macaque hearts? Well, so the idea here was to put the cells through a test that we thought would mimic what would happen in a human patient. And so since monkeys don't spontaneously get heart attacks, we had to create one experimentally. Then we came back two weeks later and used a needle and syringe to inject these heart muscle cells. And so they were, they were simply a suspension of, of heart muscle cells that had been beating in the dish previously. We took these and um, injected them into the damaged region of the heart. And what did you notice? The, first off, we, uh, we achieved the largest graphs of human heart muscle that anybody has ever seen. So th- this was quite exciting to us. Uh, on average, we grew back about 40% of the damaged region, uh, which if we could do in a patient would certainly uh, make, a, make an impact on clinical heart function. And then secondly, we, we had put in a, a, what we call a reporter gene. We, we genetically modified these cells in such a way that they are what we call flashing beaters. In brief, we, we took a protein that's normally found in jellyfish called green fluorescent protein, and it was modified in such a way that it, it only fluoresces when calcium goes up. Calcium being the trigger for the heartbeat, what that means is these cells flash green every time they beat. So we transplanted these flashing beaters into the macaque's heart, and we found when we studied them later that the human graphs were indeed flashing rhythmically, uh, so that indicates that they were beating. 
and more importantly, they were flashing in synchrony with the electrocardiogram of the monkey heart. And what that means is that the human heart muscle cells were following the monkey's natural pacemaker like good soldiers. But despite this success, you did have a complication that you weren't expecting. The complication was that these cells cause a um, transient period of rhythm disturbance as, a, after we transplant them in. What we found is that for a period of, say, two to three weeks, uh, the animals had an irregular heart rhythm called uh, ventricular tachycardia. They would go into this, they would go out of it. And it, it's, we view this as sort of a growing pains phenomenon where the, the cells that are electrically excitable are not as mature as the surrounding heart muscle cells. And it takes a little while for them to develop further and, and become better electrically matched for their new environment. Why did you choose to use embryonic stem cells to create the heart cells as opposed to induced pluripotent stem cells made from adult cells? We chose to do this with embryonic stem cells because we see the regulatory pathways being more straightforward. We can get these to the clinic faster than we could a reprogrammed or induced pluripotent stem cell. There isn't uh, any concerns about the uh, genetic stability or the effects that reprogramming might have. And at least in the United States, our regulatory agencies have some concerns and they haven't quite decided how they're going to handle reprogrammed stem cells, where they, whereas there is a fairly straightforward precedent uh, for how to go to the clinic with embryonic stem cells. And talking about scaling this up, I mean, presumably you had to use a lot more heart cells for a macaque heart as opposed to a mouse heart. How might you be able to scale this technique up to human hearts? That's a, that's a terrific question. It's a little bit daunting to, to think about. What we found is it took about a million cells to fix a mouse heart. It took 10 million to fix a rat heart. It took 100 million to fix a guinea pig's heart. And so we reasoned it would take about a billion to fix a macaque's heart. And that seems to have been about right, so I think we're scaling it appropriately, but that suggests it could take even more cells than this to fix a human heart. And the approach that we took uh, for, our, for our primate study uh, was a, a brute force approach. We just used standard cell culture techniques and did lots of it. And so we had a terrific team of people who worked day and night for, for a couple of months to grow all the cells that were necessary for this study. What we'll do for people is a, a different technique in cell production that uses a, a technology called bioreactors. And we can grow the cells in these little, uh, what we call spinner flasks, that, that stir the media. Uh, they're much more efficient at cell production. So we're working with colleagues whose expertise is cell expansion and production. And they've got this working reasonably well so that cardiomyocytes can be made much more efficiently than we were able to do with our brute force approach. How long do you think it will be uh, until we see human trials using human heart cells created using these embryonic stem cells? We anticipate it's going to take us about four years to do our first patient. We're, we're gathering the resources that we needed to do this. We've hired consultants. We've got a, a roadmap in place. And we figure we can get there, do our first patient in about four years. So that's our plan. That was Chuck Murray at the University of Washington. Coming up, two of the most deadly volcanic eruptions in recent history. But first, why are farmers turning into researchers? Reporter Jeff Marsh took a trip to the soggy British countryside to find out. One of the greatest challenges we're going to face in the future is growing enough food to feed everyone. 
the effects of climate change and an ever-growing population are going to make that more and more difficult, which means that new ideas in agricultural research will be key. Typically, agricultural R&D pours the bulk of its money into blanket solutions like industrial fertilizers or developing new strains of crops. There's no denying that these interventions have increased yields drastically over the last 50 years, but these improvements are slowing. A comment piece in Nature this week claims that the next phase of innovation must happen at a smaller scale, tapping into the local knowledge and experimentalist nature of farmers. These farmer-centred approaches have had great success in the developing world and have since inspired a similar effort in the UK. The Dutchie Originals Future Farming Programme is led by two UK charities, the Soil Association and the Organic Research Centre, and the goal is to help farmers increase their productivity in a sustainable and environmentally friendly way through field labs. The reason I'm stood on my own getting rained on in a field is because I've come to Shimpling Farm to meet one farmer come experimenter, John Pawsey, who is currently driving towards me in his Land Rover. Hi there. Hi. Ugh. Wow, there's a great smell of dog in here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a lovely dog, though. Well, thank you for inviting me into the Jeep uh, no to conduct this interview. How do you feel about engaging in research? Is it not just a sort of added burden on top of your already very busy schedule? I think because there's very little research and development going to organic farming and being an organic farmer that's a real problem uh, so as far as I'm concerned it's the only way that I'm going to get some sort of scientific solutions to the problems that we have. So do you see yourself as an experimentalist or, or a scientist? I think all farmers are experimentalists. I don't necessarily see myself as a scientist but you know every year problems arise and every year we're trying to find solutions to problems. There are hundreds of these field labs piloted by farmers like yourselves. What does your particular field lab set out to answer? Well, both of them are really looking at weed control. The first one is looking at how a plant, in its the way that it grows, shades weeds and therefore has an effect on its numbers. And the second one looks at sheep grazing in the crop and actually their effect on grazing the weeds but also grazing the crop and how that then affects the crop's growth and then therefore yield. Am I right in thinking that those sheep there out of this window are the sheep that will be involved in this trial? Exactly, yeah. We are going to put the sheep on the growing crop at a certain time in its growth. They will obviously eat the crop, but it's a time when the crop actually can stand some grazing. But we're also looking at what the sheep do and how, which weeds they select to eat and uh, what kind of effect that has on those weeds. Did men and women in lab coats come down and dictate to you what it was you should be researching or did you come up with a question how did it start well actually no that's the great thing is that you know researchers came to us as farmers and said actually you know what do you want to research and so it's, it's very much i would say a farmer-led initiative what do you feel as a farmer you're getting from the scientists well, I feel that we're getting the knowledge actually how to produce meaningful trials. I mean, as farmers, we are trialling every single year. We're trying to make decisions based on what physically happens in the field after we've made those decisions. Um, but what we don't have really are the skills to take that information, disseminate it and actually turn it into something that's valuable and can be used in the next cropping year. Presumably there are some sort of difficulties that you come up against in terms of how long you can run a trial for and how many replicates you can have. I mean, you're basically limited to your farm. 
You are, but usually they don't involve a huge amount of space. There's a lot of, a lot of organisation that goes into it. Uh, but if there's a real positive uh, benefit for me in the end, especially if it's sort of financial, then there's a real incentive to actually work with it and do whatever is required. Is your motivation centred around kind of profit margins like any business owner or is there a deeper kind of incentive to get involved in this global challenge of feeding the world? I mean, obviously, there has to be an element of profit in anything that we do. But I would say, as farmers, we're just conditioned, actually, to improve what we do, to make sure that actually what we're doing improves not only, you know, the short-term yield and profit that we get from our crops, but also the long-term viability of our soil. Has climate change affected you yet, or are you worried that it will in the future? I am worried that uh, climate change will affect us in the future. I say I'm worried, actually. Um, you know, the great thing about these trials is that, that a lot of them are looking at climate change. And I think, actually, if we can start doing the work to ensure that we address some of the risks of climate change, then we can be sort of one ahead of the game. As far as climate change actually sort of physically appearing in my lifetime, there's several things that I have noticed. And I'm able to, through the field labs, to think of trials that will help me, as an animal farmer, address some of those potential problems. OK, thanks very much, John. Do you want to lift to the station? That would be great. Yeah, cheers. That was Jeff Marsh talking to John Pawsey. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Marion Turner. Mice get stressed out by the smell of men, which could affect the results of mouse studies. A team based in Canada wanted to find out whether the sex of a scientist influenced mouse behaviour. They found that certain chemicals given off by males stressed mice out, increasing their stress hormone levels and making them hug the edge of their enclosure more. Even if there was no man present, just a t-shirt previously worn by a man could give the same effect. The team say scientists should take into account the sex of the worker when writing up their results. For more on this story of mice and men, check out Nature Methods. Birds living near the site of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster have higher levels of antioxidants, helping them mop up damaging free radicals produced by exposure to low-level radiation. It's the first evidence of wild animals adapting to radiation. Researchers took feather and blood samples from 16 bird species in and around the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Birds from the zone showed less DNA damage and oxidative stress and were in better condition, suggesting that by adapting, they had not only combated the effects of radiation, but had actually gained an advantage over birds not exposed at all. That paper is in Functional Ecology. Soon Richard van Norden will be in the studio for the news chat, but before that, Charlotte Stoddart has been learning about deadly volcanoes. Four years ago this month, the eruption of Icelandic volcano Eyjafjallajökull caused enormous disruption to air travel. The volcano created a huge ash cloud that drifted over Europe, grounding flights for almost a week. But inconvenienced travellers should have counted themselves lucky. The global impact of Eyjafjallajökull was mild compared with two historic events. In 1783, another Icelandic volcano, known as Laki, spewed out so much poisonous gas that it killed millions and caused a slight dip in global temperatures. And in 1815, the eruption of Tambora in Indonesia led to a decade of bad weather, starvation and disease. 
Joining me to discuss why some volcanoes have such a widespread and deadly impact is nature's Alex Whitsey, who's co-written a book about Lackey. Alex, what made the Lackey eruption so deadly? It was very different from the 2010 eruption that most people remember. In 2010, the big problem was ash, which gets into jet engines and forms a kind of a glassy coating that shuts the engines down. So you don't want to be flying when your engines might fail. What made Lockheed so incredibly disruptive and so deadly was gas, actually. So there wasn't too much ash that came out of Lockheed in 1783. What did come out was poisonous gas, things like sulfur dioxide, chlorine, fluorine, all these other nasty, nasty chemicals, way more than you get from any other type of eruption. Uh, It was incredibly rich in these poisons. And I read that um, this eruption could be blamed for causing the French Revolution, or kicking it off anyway. Yeah, that's that's sort of one of Lockheed's claim to fame. And it's it's a bit tenuous, but it's a great story because it's absolutely true that Lockheed caused crop failures around the Northern Hemisphere for a number of years. What happened was some of these sulfur dioxide particles um, started to act as like a natural sunscreen. So this is what happens a lot with volcanic eruptions. If you have enough stuff coming out, the particles reflect sunlight back into space and it cools the planet beneath. And that's what happened after Lockheed. And so you had cooler temperatures across much of the northern hemisphere. There were crop failures in a lot of places, Egypt, India, Japan, um, and also just across Europe. And obviously, there were a lot of things going on in France. There were a lot of reasons peasants weren't happy with the way things were going. But when your crops failed and you didn't have bread to eat, that all played into it. You know, by the time you're storming the Bastille, some scholars have linked that back to Lockheed. And you mentioned there that even crops in Japan were affected. So this had an an effect the opposite side of the world from where the eruption happened. Yeah. So so think again about the 2010 eruption and, and how far the particles went. So the ash came across Europe. Well, Lockheed was a much bigger eruption, and it went on for eight months. So it just spewed out stuff for eight months straight. And those particles were able to spread around the entire the northern hemisphere, cloaked the whole northern hemisphere, and had massive effects, even as far away as Japan. How common is this kind of eruption? So this is kind of a real general estimate. Volcanoes don't go off like clockwork. But roughly something like Lockheed happens once every 200 to 500 years. But just three decades after Lackey, there was this other huge eruption in Indonesia. So was that just a terrible coincidence that the world experienced two of these within a few decades. It is kind of astounding that two of the most world-changing eruptions in recent times happened so close to one another. But if you think about it, both Iceland and Indonesia, where the 1815 eruption went off, are incredibly volcanic places. Iceland is right on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is kind of a, a spreading center where new crust is being born all the time. And Indonesia is another incredible volcanic hotspot because one plate of the Earth's crust is diving beneath another one, and it's kind of fueling volcanoes to be born. And how similar were those two eruptions? They were similar in that they were both absolutely world-changing. The Indonesian volcano went off in 1815, and in a lot of places around the world, 1816 is kind of famously known as the year without a summer because it was so cold in so many places that crops, again, could not grow. And and famously, that's when Mary Shelley was holed up in, in a villa on the shores of Lake Geneva, and it was cold and gloomy, and they decided to have a contest about who could write a ghost story. And so Mary Shelley famously wrote Frankenstein as a direct result of this Indonesian volcano. And would she have had any idea what was causing the bad weather that summer? 
Absolutely not. I mean, that's the astounding thing about this. I mean, you think you would have cold summers, you would have lots of rain, you would have famine, and you would have no idea why. You wouldn't know that it was a remote volcano halfway around the world that was changing your life every day. If one of these super eruptions happened today, the news would travel all over the world very quickly. But is there anything that we could do to mitigate the effects? Well, think about four years ago. Officials were really not prepared for the incredible amount of shutdown and what might happen to things like, you know, flowers rotting in Kenya and people who couldn't travel and and goods and and humans who just couldn't move around the globe. So, no, we're not really prepared. Uh, There's been a lot of talk and a lot of discussion Uh, The UK government has now actually added the risk of volcanic eruptions, especially Icelandic eruptions, to its sort of official list of stuff to worry about. I would say that in general, the officials are starting to prepare a bit more and think a bit more. But how you prepare for a large-scale shutdown and large-scale poisonous cloud settling across the countryside, you know, it's not easy to do. That was Alex Whitsey talking to Charlotte. Alex's book on the Lackey eruption is called Island on Fire. It's out now in the UK and it'll be published in the US this winter. News time now and joining me in the studio is nature reporter Richard Van Norden. And first we're heading to Canada for an exciting new step in power production. Yeah, uh, later this year, Unit 3 at the Boundary Dam power station in Saskatchewan in Canada will switch on, and that will be a historic moment for carbon capture and storage technology. The idea that you can capture carbon dioxide gas from power stations and then bury it underground in order to remove the carbon emissions. The idea is that we have an enormous number of coal-fired power plants in the world, and we will do for a long time. So how are we going to cut down their carbon emissions? We'll use technology to capture the carbon dioxide. In this particular plant, it's just one unit. 90% of the emissions from that unit will be captured, says the company Sask Power in Canada. Now, there is another plant which should also switch on later this year. I think will be a bit later than the Canadian one. It's an American one in Mississippi, in Kemper County. And that is a completely new custom-built coal plant, which will capture 65% of its emissions. That's three and a half million tonnes of carbon dioxide each year uh, that it's going to bury underground. And take me through roughly how this works. Is it essentially like a big chemical net that sits on top of the, of the fumes that are being spread away? Yeah, the gases all come out mixed together, and the idea is to use solvents that selectively pull out the CO2, then heat up the solvent or perhaps change the pressure in order to get the CO2 as a concentrated stream, and that requires energy. That means that the cost of electricity from these plants could be anything from 50 to 100% more, and you're going to sort of use more coal in, in using up that energy. So that's kind of why this technology People aren't really enthusiastic about it. Companies want a lot of subsidies to put this on their coal plants. Are these prices going to come down? Do you think we might get to a stage where we're going to be able to put these on top of all of our power plants? Well, these power plants are very expensive. The custom-built one is over $5 billion. Now, how cheap can it be? Well, it's always going to be more expensive than just burning coal. But then again, you're getting rid of the CO2 emissions. So if politicians would only tax CO2 emissions or put out strong regulations that limit emissions from power plants, that would create the market. So essentially, the slow progress on on CCS is just a symptom of the slow progress among politicians on doing something about climate change. 
does this kind of technology have the potential to pull focus from renewable technologies that have a lot of sort of investment at the moment, wind and solar and so on? Yeah, coal companies have been accused of saying, it's okay, guys, we've got this wonderful technological fix so we can carry on burning coal and you don't need to worry about solar and wind. But a better way of thinking about it is that none of these technologies are going to be able to decarbonize electricity on their own. Of course, solar and wind will be the ultimate future, but we need this bridge of CCS up to 2050 um, to help us. And the International Energy Agency says if we don't have CCS in our options, it'll cost us up to 40% more to decarbonize sufficiently to meet our international climate targets. So CCS should, in theory, make it cheaper. And to be honest, we just need to learn more about its costs. And there are even questions about will we be able to bury it if we have the right geologies. And this all just needs to be demonstrated and proven and shown. 10, 100, 1,000 plants is what people are talking about. We're talking about piping and burying gases on the same scale as today's oil and gas industry. It could be an enormous industry. And these are just the first two power plants. Okay, so watch this space and find out whether or not we're going to have carbon capture storage on all of our power stations in the future. And now from Canada down to the US and a very different story, the death penalty. This is a really fascinating study by criminologists. And they say that one in 25 defendants who are sentenced to death on death row would be exonerated if they were given enough time to prove their innocence. That strikes me as a very important statistic. How on earth have they worked this out? You're right. How do you measure this? Well, since 1973, we know that 7,500 defendants have been sentenced to death on death row. And by 2004, which is when they started looking at the statistics, 1.6%, a very small number, had been exonerated. 12.6% had been executed. And almost half were still on death row. And the idea is that they use a statistical method called a survival curve. And it's commonly used in epidemiology to measure the number of people in a population who die from a specific cause over a certain short period, and then to extrapolate what would happen, the rate of deaths for longer periods of time, because we've still got half the people on death row still sentenced to death. So the idea is that if people remained indefinitely on death row, judging from the exoneration rate so far, we would get to 4.1% exonerated. So if one in 25 people could potentially be wrongfully accused of the, of the crimes they've been sentenced to death for, then does this have some kind of impact on legislation in terms of, in terms of the death penalty? Well, the question is whether any statistics and scientific studies can really change the US idea that there has to be a death penalty, that there has to be death row. And I'm not sure that this study is, is going to be it. But there are some other interesting points that this study brings up just beyond that sort of shocking headline figure. One of the first points is that many people on death row, um, in fact, uh, some a third um, of the defendants we know about were removed from, from death row and then just were carted off for life imprisonment somewhere else. So they weren't killed. Um, but these people actually maybe have a worse time of it because once you're taken off death row, you're not treated as a priority in the, in the legal system and the chance of clearing your name plummets. Lawyers really work very hard to definitively determine guilt when a person's life is on the line. Um, and so there's this suggestion that the exoneration rates we might be seeing on death row could possibly be applied to the entire legal system, but that lawyers work much harder for death row. So it's only in that case that you can see that maybe one in 25 people might be exonerated. And that in itself is a conservative figure. 
Many presumably innocent people, we must assume in the data, never even managed to prove their innocence before they were executed. We're only extrapolating from the 1.6% that were exonerated. So 1 in 25 is actually the, the lower bound of what it might really be. OK, and for more on both of those stories, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. Tune in next time when we'll hear how an online game is helping neuroscientists map the brain. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Noah Baker. <laughs>